Welcome to the very first episode of 101, A Beginner's Guide to Life. Today, we'll be talking about Bitcoin. Bitcoin was created in 2008 by an anonymous person or persons using the name Satoshi Nakamoto and released to the world in 2009 as an open source software and the first major decentralized currency. Since then, it has grown to become a household name, and we've brought our friend Will to help us learn more about it. Will is a successful freelance software developer, and we've linked his information in the description. This episode, Will references the 2020 halving, which took place Monday, May 11th. We also want to say that we're simply here to help you learn more about Bitcoin, and we aren't giving any financial advice, simply sharing opinions. All right. Hey, everybody. We are here today with our friend, Will. Say hi. Hello. And Will uh, is a good friend of both mine and Williams for a long time. And he is here to explain to us the very simple concept of Bitcoin. Will, how are you doing today? Very simple. Pretty good. Pretty good. Just uh, trying to stay inside. It's getting hot in Texas. <laughs> so Yeah, because yeah, staying inside is an option right now. Yes. <laughs> well, there's the backyard. We, uh, yeah, my son loves playing in the backyard, so I spend more time outdoors than I would really prefer to. <laughs> I'm told it's good for his growth. Parenthood's really hard, you know, make yeah. sacrifices. I'm told I'm not supposed to just let him watch Thomas the Train on Netflix on repeat all day. Uh, but that is the easiest option. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't see the downside. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's going to know his trains inside and out, which is definitely <laughs> it's a good will, career. Union Pacific yeah. pays great, I hear. It'll serve him well in the future. So my first cool. question for you, Will, uh, how many times have you had to sit down and explain Bitcoin to people who have no idea what it is? Um, more times than I thought that I would. I mean, I, <laughs> I guess I, I should have expected. You don't really tell people about it and they're like, go figure it out. Uh, <laughs> most, yeah. I feel like when when you tell people to go figure it out on their own, they're usually like, "I've got about a million other things that I'm more interested in." So, um, I usually get asked to explain it to people's parents. Uh, <laughs> they're like, "I don't really have any money for this, but you should talk to my parents." Uh, <laughs> so, when did so, you start getting into Bitcoin? Um, in earnest, uh. Let's see. Two Novembers ago. When was that? That was November uh, 2018. Um, and then, so that was like my first uh, like real buy-in and then uh, really started learning more and more about it um, in like July of last year. And then my uh, my research into it is still ongoing. Um, but yeah, I, I heard about it. I don't know exactly when in its life cycle uh, after it had already gotten like a dollar value, which was it operated for a while as just like a, a toy project. No one really knew what, if anything, it would be used for. And it didn't really have any real world value. Uh, and then there was sort of like a big moment where uh, someone bought a pizza with Bitcoin. It was the first time anyone had exchanged um, 
this digital currency for like real world goods and services. Uh, and so, I mean, it's sort of silly to think about, uh, but someone bought, uh, I think it was pizza for, I don't know, some absurd amount, like 20,000 Bitcoin. And uh, <laughs> so that immediately, that like put a price to it. It was like, okay, so a Bitcoin is worth, you know, like uh, a hundredth of a, of a penny or a tenth of a penny. I can't math. I think so, the real question is what kind of pizza was it? Because that determines the price too. Like yeah, Little Caesars a story. You're right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The first buy was not a hot and ready. I don't think uh, <laughs> I think it was Domino's. Oh, so five ninety nine. That was before that special. That's yeah. how old Bitcoin remember is. This. Wow, look at that. Yeah, I I should really know exactly when it started, but I think it was uh two thousand and nine. Okay. At least that was when the, the paper was published, I think. Um, gotcha. Yeah. So if you knew about Bitcoin from 2009, or, or probably a little after that, you said, once it started getting a dollar amount, which we could probably assume was another year or so after that, what made you wait from when you first found out about it to two Novembers ago to actually buy it? Yeah. Uh, so main thing was definitely that I did not fully understand it. I didn't understand what was useful or uh, good about it or uh, why it would, why it would necessarily take off uh, as I see it now. Um, so when I first heard about it, uh, my impression was uh, basically one of, okay, cool. There's a digital currency you know, most of my dollars are basically already digital. <laughs> I I can buy pretty much anything without pulling out cash. Uh, Joe T's is about the only place that still demands that I fetch them cash before <laughs> I show up. Um, so it wasn't immediately obvious to me why it was useful. You know, it's like we can already buy things online. Um, and so I was sort of interested in it just as uh, something that I knew was uh, – was going up in price. And so I bought like half of Bitcoin for like 30 bucks or something like that. <laughs> and I remember feeling like an idiot after I bought it. I was like, I just traded like actual money for <laughs> nothing. And, uh, but I did it and uh, I held on to it for a couple of months. And uh, I don't remember exactly what I bought with it. I can see it because I bought it on Coinbase. And so I can see like my transaction history. Uh, and I spent some of it. I have no idea on what. Um, and then I sold it uh, a couple of months later um, for, I think I made like, I sold it for like $90. Wow. So I was, able, I was able to spend some of it and still make a profit. So it went up pretty quickly. Uh, and that was why I sold it. I was like, "Oh man, look at look at what Bitcoin's at now." I, wow, a hundred dollars. It's not going to get any better than that. <laughs> yeah, the price per Bitcoin went from like sixty to a hundred and twenty dollars or something like that. I was like, "I'm out." I made I made fifty uh, or two hundred percent on that. So, um, yeah, so that was my first experience with it. I didn't really understand uh like why it was useful or what would be uh yeah why i I couldn't envision a narrative where the world was going to adopt bitcoin 
uh, it just seemed too far-fetched. So uh, I didn't really see it as anything more than a toy and something that, you know, if you timed it right, you can make some money on. Um, but do you think now that the world will adopt at some point? I I do. Yeah. It's uh, most people probably immediately will put me in like the crazy category as soon <laughs> as I say something like that. Cause it's uh, you know, we've never really seen a currency change uh, certainly not in our lifetime, but like even, you know, my parents' lifetime. Um, so it sort of seems like something that is just impossible because it's not something that happens very frequently. Um, but I think the, the U.S. dollar has been on a bad trajectory for a while and um, they are printing money just as fast as they can uh, to try to fix it, but it's only digging a bigger hole. Uh, and so I think the, the inflation of the U S dollar will be what turns a lot of people to Bitcoin. So, Will, can you explain, uh, what makes Bitcoin different than like a normal currency? Yeah. Uh, so pretty much every currency, I'm running through a list right now, trying to think if there's any exceptions, uh, are centralized currencies. So they, um, they're run by a central bank. Uh, so for the U S dollar, that's the, uh, federal reserve. Um, and so, uh, the monetary policy or what happens to the money is completely dictated by that group of people. Um, so, they can decide to make more U.S. dollars whenever they want to. Uh, and so anytime you have something that is uh, monopolized and centrally controlled, uh, you run the risk of um, that power being abused. Uh, and I think I would, I would tend to say anytime you have that, it will always eventually get abused. Um, so the reason it will get abused is just that the people in control of it will have to make a hard decision uh, to do uh, what they think is best. And at some point that decision will be made by someone who makes the wrong decision and thinks that they're doing what's best. Uh, so in the case of like the federal reserve, uh, they're inflating the, uh, the dollar supply so that they can buy out uh, and stand up businesses that are failing uh, for reasons that they perceive as being good. Um, like saying, Hey, if uh, American airlines goes under, that's going to be really bad for everybody. Um, and certainly it will be bad. Uh, I think the disagreement is just on what should you do in light of that? Should you try to prevent it from happening? and at what cost. And uh, if you don't prevent it from happening, how bad is that fallout? Um, so, um, so Bitcoin is different um, because it has no uh, central uh, group or authority that is in control of it. Uh, and that's uh, when you hear people say Bitcoin is decentralized, that's what they mean by that. Um, so, uh, any 
any person can download and run uh, the Bitcoin software and start up a Bitcoin node. Uh, and those nodes all connect to each other and exchange messages. Um, and they are each enforcing the rules on each other. Uh, and so the more people that start up Bitcoin software and run it, the more nodes there are, the more decentralized uh, the platform is as a whole. Uh, and it limits any one person's um, uh, ability to affect the network as a whole. And that uh, also differs Bitcoin from other current from other like uh, cryptocurrencies too, right? A lot of those aren't decentralized. Uh, yeah, a lot of them are not. Uh, a lot of them claim to be and are like set up in ways that, uh, in theory, they could be decentralized, but in reality, they are not. Um, so, uh, like you've got cryptocurrencies that will, uh, they make changes to, um, a, a lot of cryptocurrencies have actually started as forks of Bitcoin where they've, they've taken Bitcoin they say, okay, this has got some cool stuff in it, but I think it would be better if it actually worked like this. And so they change it and, uh, they start it up and they've effectively created a new currency that is similar in some ways to Bitcoin and different in others. And, um, other people who are, uh, who believe in those changes will switch their software from Bitcoin to whatever this new thing is and start running that software. So the changes that get made to these other coins um, sometimes, but not all the time, can be uh, changes that hurt the ability to uh, decentralize it. So uh, in one example, and this is starting to get a little technical, um, the block size of the blockchain was changed to allow for more transactions per second. So it, it let you uh, let the network handle more, uh, more transactions in the currency, uh, which they thought was necessary uh, for adoption. They were like, you know, Bitcoin doesn't scale. It can't handle enough transactions. So we're going to make a new cryptocurrency that can handle more transactions. Um, but the flip side of that is that their blockchain grows at twice the speed. Uh, and so it makes it more of an investment for just an average person to run a node. Um, and so like if you're going to run the uh, Bitcoin uh, software and run your own Bitcoin node, uh, you would have to uh, allocate like right now it's something like 320 gigabytes storage space to do that. Um, and so as you as you increase the cost of people to be able to start uh, nodes, uh, you hurt the decentralization of it. So uh, Bitcoin is always prioritized, um, making it cheap and resource, um, uh, resource light to, uh, to encourage more people uh, to be able to start up uh, nodes. So I do have a, a quick follow-up question on that. You say Bitcoin tries to make it easy to decentralize. Uh, mm -hmm. But how can Bitcoin yeah. do anything if it is decentralized? Who is Bitcoin and how would they do something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so uh, Bitcoin is just a piece of software um, and people make changes to the software uh, and the changes are done by a core team of people, uh, though anyone can contribute. Uh, not all contributions will be accepted. Um, and so those people you could say are the people in charge of Bitcoin. Um, 
but they are they have no power over who runs their code. Uh, so if if the core team doing that started making changes that other people didn't agree with, uh, that would hurt the network as a whole. People would drop off. People would uh, not run it. Uh, so in general, the the team and the changes that are accepted into uh, the Bitcoin core are um, tend to be very conservative in nature, uh, so as not to rock the boat and uh, cause people to leave. Um, and yeah, so because Bitcoin works as a consensus of lots of different computers uh, using software to talk to each other, uh, if you come out with a version of Bitcoin that changes something that other people don't like, they just don't run that version of the code uh, on their computer. And so when their software tries to talk to, um, you know, someone else's software that has modifications to it, uh, as soon as there's a disagreement on how something should be done, they will cut ties and stop talking to that software. Um, so it makes it hard to make changes that are against the good of the network as a whole. Okay, Will, so that brings me to a question. I'm kind of backtracking. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. But you said that no, part of the reason that the regular currency can fail is they just print more. Uh, what's stopping Bitcoin from just, when it gets things complicated, they just print more and pass them out? Yeah. Uh, the main reason would be that it's not in everyone's best interest to print more. Um, you know, if, if you're holding on to uh, a single, a single Bitcoin and that's worth some value and they decide to double the amount of total Bitcoins available from uh, 21 million to 42 million uh, and start uh, the mining process again, that effectively means the value of your single Bitcoin just got cut in half um, overnight. Um, so that's not something that like everyone would agree to uh generally when you're inflating the currency you're you're primarily helping out some small party uh to the detriment of the rest of the people using the currency uh but it of course tries to get sold as something that is good for everybody um but it's effectively just another tax. So, so that that twenty one million number—that's that's an actual number. That's just how many bitcoins there are. Yes, that is uh, hard coded into the protocol um, that uh, there will only ever be twenty one million bitcoin. So we can sort of uh, we could talk about like the mining process of how bitcoins get created um, and uh, sort of go into yeah. that, which we'll touch a little bit more on that limit if that is interesting please do yeah um yeah so uh when you uh use bitcoin and you make a transaction uh you send the transaction out on the network and uh that that message of that transaction gets uh propagated throughout all the nodes on the network so node one receives your transaction and goes okay cool it validates it it makes sure that like you're not um spending more than you have uh that you're not double spending something you're trying to pay the same thing to two people uh it validates things like that to make sure that the transaction is um is valid and then if it determines that it is valid it passes the message on to other people 
uh, other nodes in the network. So that process happens until eventually your transaction has arrived at every computer on the network that thinks that it's a valid transaction. How long does um, something like that take? And some of uh, it propagates uh, effectively. I would say it's a few seconds to go all the way around wow. the world. Um, yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty fast. Um, so some of the some of the nodes on the network uh, are facilitating a role called uh, mining, and so uh, lots of people have heard of Bitcoin miners. Um, what those members of the network do is they take all of the transactions that are coming in and they assemble it into uh, what's called a block. Uh, and a block is just a list of confirmed, proven, valid transactions. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll sort of skip over the process of making a block, uh, but the, the, the general takeaway of it is that it is something that is difficult and takes time and is uh, random. So it's not something that you can uh, outsmart or solve. Uh, it's something that just takes a lot of brute force work. Um, it's basically akin to rolling like a hundred dice and you have to turn up all ones uh, to produce a block. So you can really only do it by just doing it a bunch of times. Uh, and so all of the miners on the network are all doing that consecutively, all racing against each other to try to find uh, the solution for this block before anyone else. Uh, and the reason why they do that is uh, in the block that they are building, uh, they have a transaction. Uh, the first transaction listed in the block is something that pays them a reward. Um, so they get a reward for mining a block. Uh, and the amount that they get is hard-coded into the protocol. Uh, so right now, the reward is 12 and a half Bitcoin. So if you mine a block, uh, you get to pay yourself 12 and a half Bitcoin from nothing. So normally for a transaction to be valid, it has to have uh, an input, which comes from the output of a previous transaction. And uh, so it has to have an input, and then you pay out some number of outputs. Uh, and so the, that first transaction in a block is called the Coinbase transaction, not to be confused with the company Coinbase who named their company after that concept. Um, so the, that um, Coinbase transaction has no inputs and just has an output paying the, the block reward to the address of the miner. Uh, so that is where new Bitcoins come into circulation is through that process. How can there be new Bitcoins with um, a finite cap on the amount of Bitcoins? Good question. Uh, so that uh, issuance rate decreases over time. Uh, it's a function of the number of blocks that have been created thus far. Um, so right now I can pull up the number real quick. Um, let's see the number of blocks that have been created so far is 628,778. So uh, at, at certain intervals in that, uh, that count of the number of blocks, the amount of Bitcoin that gets given gets reduced. Uh, and so those events are called halvings or halvenings. Uh, people refer to it both ways. 
Um, and basically at those, uh, at those events, the, the amount of Bitcoin that gets uh, delivered as a reward gets cut in half. Um, so we're actually about to have one in about a week. Uh, they come about every four years. <clears throat> I say about because it's based on the number of blocks uh, that have been produced. And so that is not a, uh, a time-based function. Um, and so, yeah, it takes about four years for having. We've had two already. I think that's right. Yeah. So it started out when Bitcoin first started, the reward was 50. And then first having cut to 25, last having it cut to 12 and a half. And then uh, in about a week, the reward will drop down to uh, six and a quarter. Um, and so that process continues for, uh, I, I don't remember the exact amount, but I think it's going to be about 100 years until the reward goes to zero. I mean, in theory, uh, if it always halves, it never actually goes to zero, right? Right. Um, it eventually gets to a point where the, like, you have below the, um, the like, smallest unit of a Bitcoin. Uh, so Bitcoin, is, one Bitcoin is divisible uh, into 100 million pieces. So once um, it's worth less than one so hundred millionth would, of a Bitcoin, it's effectively zero? Yeah. Uh, and so uh, usually the next question is, well, why will people continue to mine blocks once there's no reward? Um, and so there's, there's one other aspect of Bitcoin transactions that I haven't mentioned yet, and that's the fee for transacting. Um, so when you are, um, when you're building a transaction, you say, okay, I'm taking uh, this input and I'm paying this output to this person uh, and normally what you do is you have uh, a fee in that transaction also. So if I'm paying out, uh, let's just say uh, one, I, I have an input of one Bitcoin and I'm paying something to William for uh, 0.9999 Bitcoin. Uh, there's an amount there that's left over. Uh, that change uh, becomes the, the fee. Uh, so any Bitcoin that is not allocated when you total up the in or when you subtract the outputs from the input is the fee. And so the miners are also able to pay the fee to themselves uh, in addition to the block reward. Um, so, uh, yeah, the idea is that as time goes on, um, the reward becomes less of an incentive than the fees that you get to collect from the transactions. Okay, so Will, I'm learning a lot right now. Part of it being that you're so much smarter than I am. Um, <laughs> yes. But so I, you know, I I like to play with stocks and trade whatever. So I go on Robinhood, not sponsored, uh, mm -hmm. and it says <laughs> it, it tells me that I think I just checked Bitcoin. I could buy one Bitcoin for like nine thousand dollars. That mm -hmm. it, it sounds to me like that's not a good way of doing it but I don't necessarily know why. So would you explain to me if I should do that or if I should not do that? Uh, why is, what, what is the consequences either way? Yeah. Uh, so my advice would be to not do that. <laughs> and I'll explain the reasoning for that. Um, so when you buy, and this is sort of specific to Robinhood, but it can apply to other companies that, uh, that follow a similar thing. Uh, 
Robinhood does not give you custody of the Bitcoin. So when you buy uh, Bitcoin from them, the only thing that you can do with it is sell it back to them at a higher price, um, you hope. Um, so you're unable to withdraw the Bitcoin to your either your own wallet or to pay someone else. Uh, and so that crucial um, difference between, so like with Coinbase or with the Cash App, uh, you can buy Bitcoins and then you can sell it back to them or you can withdraw it to your own account. Um, and when you withdraw it, you have full control over it. Uh, no one else is custodying your Bitcoin. Um, and that that's important because there have been cases in the past where uh, companies are doing uh, fractional reserve banking with your Bitcoin Um which is something that is done with our dollar system, um, but is not something that works well when you have a, a really hard asset, something that can't be inflated. So I'll give you an example. If, if Robinhood didn't actually purchase Bitcoin when you bought Bitcoin from them, that would be a case of fractional reserve. So they're just telling you that you have some amount of Bitcoin and they're going to say, we'll honor it when you sell it at whatever the price is. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's not good for multiple reasons, the least of which being that you can't uh, do anything with that Bitcoin um, beyond just selling it back to Robinhood. So, uh, yeah, if it went up in value and you wanted to, I don't know, send it somewhere else to save it securely, um, you wouldn't be able to do anything other than just sell it to Robinhood and hope that they don't go under. So where do I buy Bitcoin then? Yeah. Um, I, I think probably the best place right now is the cash app. Uh, it's really easy uh, to buy Bitcoin there. You can set up recurring buys um, and you can withdraw it. Um, another one that's pretty good is uh, Coinbase. Um there's some disagreement. Some hardcore Bitcoiners don't really like Coinbase. I think there's um, there's a fear that they may be doing fractional reserve, uh, even though you are allowed to withdraw Bitcoin from them. It's it's basically impossible to know unless they do a uh, proof of reserves where they show you the actual addresses on the blockchain that they have control over that has the Bitcoin in it, um, which they don't do, uh, which is why... Uh, I do buy from Coinbase when I do large purchases of Bitcoin, um, but I always immediately withdraw it as soon as I'm able to, just to prevent uh, the possibility of them not actually holding real Bitcoin for me. Um, there have been, in the, in the early days of Bitcoin, some of the um, early exchanges were doing that. Uh, they were telling you that you had Bitcoin and then they went under and disappeared and no one could get their Bitcoin back. And people were like, hey, I had 100 Bitcoin with you. Where did it go? And they're like, sorry, we don't exist anymore. Uh, and so they either left with all of that Bitcoin or they never had it to begin with because they thought that they were just going to be able to make money off of it. Um, so that's why there's a, there's a strong ethos in the Bitcoin community of like wanting to actually own and have proof that you own the Bitcoin that you get. Um, yeah. 
So it sounds to me like Bitcoin is a lot closer to like gold than it is to like U.S. currency. Yes, absolutely. Uh, gold is another uh, very hard asset. Um, hardness mostly just refers to its inability to be created easily. Um, so if, if gold were to massively go up in value, like say double in value, um, certainly miners around the world would start scrambling to go mine more gold out than we currently are because it would be really profitable for them to do it. Um, and they would probably be able to affect the supply of gold a little bit, but on the whole, gold is just really hard to find and really hard to dig out and extract. Um, and so that, that hardness makes it, um, basically it, it has a lot of, um, resistance to being inflated. Um, whereas like if you were to say, um, I don't know if, if iPhones became a currency, Apple would be like, all right, awesome. Fire up the factory. Never stop like, making iPhones. We'll make, you know, wait. Yeah, we'll make so many. Uh, and so something that's easily able to be produced um, is not going to be a hard asset. So like silver is a lot easier to produce uh, than gold is, which is why you don't have as many people using silver to store value. Um because it's easier for people to come along and inflate it. If the value of silver ever did go up, um, the, the miners would push that price back down by producing more of it. So, Will, I'm not going to hold you to this as like, you know, this is the, the definitive answer. But uh, if you were to say, okay, in this time, Bitcoin will start to become the new currency that is more standardized. Do you have a, a timeline when mm -hmm. you think that would happen? I, I don't know. I, I've seen some pretty crazy predictions of like, like in, in uh, a pretty short amount of time, like within 10 years. Um, and the, the models that they're based on, and I'm not a, uh, a statistician, so I, I'm not the best person to talk to about the soundness of the, the models. Um, but it, it seems like it might happen in a short amount of time, like within 10 to 20 years, um, which seems crazy. Um, it's a lot more comfortable to say it'll happen in 100 years because anything <laughs> could happen in 100 years, right? Um, so I, to answer your question, I don't know. Um, I see its value going up uh, a lot um, from where it's at right now. Uh, just historically at other have, uh, halvings, um, the price tends to go up 10x within the next year or year and a half uh, from those events. So right now we're at like, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of 10,000. Um, I think in a year, two years, it'll be more in the ballpark of 100,000. Wow. So what typically happens to like the value um, of Bitcoin immediately after the half? Um, immediately after the halving, um, usually not much. Uh, sometimes it can even drop 
because there is uh there tends to be some media hype around the um having events uh where they you know uh tell people that the price goes up dramatically at these halvings uh, and they don't tell people the crucial part that it's it's because of what's happening at the having, but it doesn't happen instantaneously like it's a uh it's a change to the system that takes time to propagate through to the price um it, it's effectively a supply shock because uh, the amount of fresh bitcoin able to be sold into the market by miners uh gets cut in half and so they have half as much able to be sold um so uh because of that i think you can tend to see like a little bit of a dip in price actually after the having because you get a lot of people who uh haven't researched it enough or just heard a little bit about it um and they're like, oh, cool. It's, you know, next week. I'll buy it right now. And then two weeks go by. And they're like, <laughs> what the heck? It's still basically where I bought it at. And so then they sell it. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know what will happen. We're having the happening at a very strange time in the world with coronavirus and uh, with the crazy amount of um, economic stimulus that's happening. Uh, so I think it's drawing people's eye to the potential instability of the system at the same time that the, um, the thing that proves Bitcoin's uh, hardness also happens. So uh, those two things coinciding uh, are, that's a first. So it's possible that the price swings quicker, uh, but, yeah, it's anytime you're trying to make predictions on price, it's it's a losing proposition. Just, just like anything. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, yeah. So that's why I, I prefer ranges uh, like uh, and orders of magnitude. There's uh, some quote, I don't know who said it, uh, said I'd um, rather be basically right than exactly mm -hmm. wrong. So that's true. So what kind of stuff do you buy with Bitcoin? Like you personally, um, not Me personally, I don't spend Bitcoin. Um, I value it much higher than the market currently values it. So I save it. I use it as a saving tool. Um, so instead of investing savings in stocks or bonds... Uh, or sitting in a savings account, uh, I would rather have it uh, resting in Bitcoin. Um, the price is volatile, so it's not a good place to store money that you think that you might need in the short term. Um, but if you've got money that you're sure that you can part with um, and that you are as sure as you can be that you won't be forced to take it out by some external circumstances. Uh, I think Bitcoin is, is a smart place to put, put some of that, but on, on the, the topic of what you can buy with it, there are um, marketplaces um, there. I think uh, Domino's there's a, there's a way to pay for a pizza with Bitcoin using Domino's. Uh, there's a lot of, um, services that will sell you gift cards to places with Bitcoin um, as sort of just a, a way to convert it back into something that businesses will take. I mean, in theory, couldn't you just um, sell it and get your cash? 
Yeah, you can do that too. Um, yeah, so I, and, and there are people doing that. Um, I think the place where that makes the most sense is if your local currency is not doing the job of money very well. Um, so like Venezuela is going through a hyperinflationary period right now where they're like the value of their money relative to the US dollar or relative to Bitcoin is changing dramatically, like tens of thousands of units worth a day. Um, and so you get your paycheck and it's in your Venezuelan boulevards. And the first thing that you want to do is change it into something that is not dropping like a rock. Uh, and so people will opt for US dollars and Bitcoin. Uh, and it's probably just a matter of which one is easiest for them to get. Um, and so then they can hold that currency and they can actually save their money rather than having it disappear overnight. I think you said this earlier, but uh, just so I can ask this again, how many Bitcoin are currently in circulation? Uh, I think it's something like... 17 million um it's a it's a lot it's a large portion of the total amount due to the the logarithmic nature of um the having events um yeah i can google it while uh while we're talking great not that that's going to be an interesting <laughs> number 18, 18 million. million okay 18 18.3 million Bitcoins are in existence as of this article written a few months ago. And some basic, you know, economic supply demand would say that as the supply of Bitcoin goes down, the demand only seems to be increasing over the last few years. I remember probably, I think it was about 2014, yeah. uh, back when I was in college, um, one of my coworkers at the time would tell absolutely anybody that would listen that Bitcoin was the future. And that every dollar we made waiting tables and bartending, we needed to be putting into Bitcoin and that trust him. We would be so glad we did. And I think at the time, to your point, like when we talk about the early value of Bitcoin, I think it was around $20 at the time. And I went and checked and I was yeah. like, you know, I really want to mm -hmm. see like, you know, I've heard of Bitcoin. I know about Bitcoin, but, you know, if, if somebody is spending their entire life telling me this is the way, I'll look into it a little bit. And, you know, of mm -hmm. course, I didn't buy any Bitcoin at the time. And if I had, I would have been much better off about it. Yeah. You wouldn't be making this podcast. <laughs> about a year ago when everything spiked, I would have sold like everybody else. And I don't know what happened to him. But at the time, he owned thousands of dollars in Bitcoin around the $20 mark. So assuming he handled mm -hmm. that well, I'm sure he came out on top. Uh, but if you just look at like how the, yeah. you know, the demand for Bitcoin has changed since 2014, even over the last six years. Uh, there's no reason that it, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's growing exponentially and the amount of Bitcoin left seems to be mm -hmm. dwindling, which is, you know, great yep. for the value in terms of a basic supply demand model. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. The, um, even if demand were not affected, the having events would still have, uh, a large impact on price, you know, doubling it, uh, just on the basis of one side of that equation changing. It seems like, yeah. Um, but I think you see inst instead of a 2x, you see a 10x because it coincides with a dramatic increase in demand as well as people 
um, yeah, start to start to find value in it or find interest in it. Um, yeah. And there's, there's a lot of fear, I think, around investors at these having events, like, um, it, it changes every time there are people who've been doing like polls, um, to get like a vibe of what, what they think Bitcoin's biggest problem is at different points in time. And uh, at the having events, it's typically the fear that all of the miners are just going to give up because they're getting paid too little. Um, and uh, they usually refer to it as a, a minor death spiral. Um, but that has never happened. Uh, and it doesn't really make sense to me why that would happen. Um, you definitely get miners closing their doors. Uh, like the less profitable miners are, are just not able to hang in there when the price, uh, when the, the supply shock hits them. Um, but for well-run businesses that have access to cheap electricity and good equipment uh, and a good amount of savings behind them, they can weather the immediate hit of the, the supply getting cut in half, but the price not moving immediately. Uh, and if they're able to hold on, um, you know, that price has always so how long up. does a having take how long does the when it starts people getting through the mining when when do you know it's done like all right so how long does it take before it's done yeah uh it is uh it's an instantaneous event so it's either happened or not happened uh and it is it happens at the block number so uh i don't know the exact specific block number but uh say the um 680,000 block is the block that it will have on um, the block right before that is going to pay out a reward of 12 and a half and the block right after it is going to pay out a reward of 6.25 uh, and so um, at, I think people say that the, have, the having has happened after that first block of the new reward level has been mined um, and every block that's mined after that will will be at the same reward level till the next having. Uh, basically, what that means is you've got these computers on the network, uh, miners, that are getting all of these transactions that are flying around, and they're assembling them into blocks. And they're trying to come up with a, uh, a solution for this math problem that makes the block valid. And uh, it's a a process that can only be solved with uh, brute force attempting of it. Uh, and so they uh, try lots of different answers until they finally find uh, a solution to it that is, makes a valid block. And then when they have it, they broadcast that block out on the network. Um, and so that propagates through all of the nodes and they, they get the block, they validate everything on it themselves to make sure that they agree that it's a valid block. Uh, and if they agree, then they broadcast it to others that they're connected to. So the blocks propagate basically the same way that the transactions propagate. Um, and they both get validated by every node on the network. Um, and uh, the way that um, you know that they, they come roughly every 10 minutes is um, through a process called the difficulty adjustment, which is another thing that's built into the protocol. Um, which basically says that every, um, I forget what it is, 
uh, some number of blocks every, we'll say every 2,000 blocks. I think it's 2016 blocks. Um, the, the difficulty of finding the solution gets adjusted. Um, and so remember, I had mentioned that it's a, a random process like, um, like rolling a dice. Uh, it would basically be um, similar to if you said, okay, you've got to roll um, 100 dice and the sum total of all the dice has to be under, um, you know, 500. Well, that's not too hard to do because all you need to do is just not roll, you know, too many sixes um, and you can do it. But at, you can see at, if you change that, if you move that bar uh, of like the number that you're trying to keep it under down, it becomes harder and harder to roll a hundred dice and satisfy that constraint. Um, and so that's effectively what the difficulty adjustment does to the Bitcoin network. It changes um, the difficulty of the problem that the miners are doing. Uh, and so um, the difficulty is a function of how much time it took to mine the last 216 worth of blocks. Uh, and it, it's supposed to take two weeks. And so if it took, uh, you know, 15 days, then they know that the difficulty is too high. And so they lower the difficulty. Uh, if it's supposed to take two weeks and it took 10 days, then they know that they need to increase the difficulty because the blocks are being mined too fast. Um, and so this process regulates um, the speed of issuance of these blocks. Um, and it's able to maintain that same rate of 10 blocks or a block every 10 minutes, uh, even through massive changes in uh, the mining system. Um, so that means that when a new miner comes on the network, and I, I say one miner, but typically these mining farms are plugging in, you know, a hundred, a thousand different computers all set up to mine Bitcoin. Uh, so when they add that to the network, which is a massive increase in the capability of, um, of how fast these problems can be solved, it only affects the speed of the blocks for a short period of time. And then the system makes itself more difficult. Um, so, um, yeah, that is uh, a long explanation to when Great. is mining happening. And then you said, I mean, like I could go, I, Bitcoin can be uh, divided up into 100 million parts. So I go on Cash App right now. Mm -hmm. I can buy anything up to one mm -hmm. 100 millionth of a Bitcoin, theoretically. Obviously, it's not that easy. But if I had... 20 bucks today and like all i have is 20 bucks yeah. i could technically put that in to mm -hmm. something and get something back for a piece of bitcoin correct correct yeah you can buy any amount uh you don't have to uh, yeah that's a common misconception that you have to be able to afford like the the current market price of a whole bitcoin because you could uh yeah that's not the case you can buy uh pretty much any dollar amount worth of bitcoin um, you usually can't buy any Bitcoin amount because um, the smallest unit of a Bitcoin, the, uh, the one 100 millionth is uh, referred to as a, a sat or a Satoshi um, named after the uh, pseudonymous 
uh, inventor of Bitcoin. Uh, and so that uh, one sat is worth uh, you know, a fraction of a penny and there's not any company who's willing to pay the visa processing fees to charge your credit card for a fraction of a penny. So like with cash app, I think the smallest dollar amount you can buy is $1. Seems reasonable um, enough. And so, and that, yeah. So, and you're, anytime you buy Bitcoin through uh, an exchange, you're always paying some sort of exchange fee. So, you know, Cash App or Coinbase is taking some amount of the money that you paid them for themselves. So you're not getting, you know, if you pay a dollar, you're not getting a full dollar's worth of um, of Bitcoin. You're going to be getting, you know, 95 cents worth of Bitcoin or something uh, on that order of magnitude. The fee becomes less of uh, an issue when you're buying more. Um, usually the fees can be pretty a pretty high percentage of your overall buy if you're only buying like a dollar. But if you buy ten dollars, uh, it it affects your what you're getting. So less. I think my last so. question, uh, you've already touched on you know, how to actually tangibly go purchase a Bitcoin and how to own it. Let's say someone listens to this podcast and they decide mm-hmm. that, you know, they're sold on the concept of Bitcoin. They wanna, you know, they want to learn a little bit more about it before they actually invest their hard earned money in it. How would they yep. get from where they are right now? Let's say they knew nothing. They listen to this podcast. Now they want to get into Bitcoin. What steps would you give mm-hmm. them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I definitely think it is, it's something that you should know and understand um, as well as you can before you get into it. Um, and the best way to do that is by um, – reading articles, following people on Twitter who are in the Bitcoin world um, that produce lots of good content. Um, there's a company called Unchained Capital um, that's based out of Austin that publishes a lot of good, solid uh, content on Bitcoin and how it works and um, why it is a good thing. Um, so I would probably um, yeah, we'll, give we'll you link some links the to add to the show notes that are good starting points. Yeah. Uh, so I'd say definitely read through that, understand it um, before you just jump into it. Um, and then when you go through the per- uh, the process of making your first buy, either with the Cash App or with Coinbase or, or some other exchange, um, then I would start to do research into what it looks like to actually hold the Bitcoin yourself, what it takes to get a wallet. Um and transfer it to yourself because I think that that's an important step, but it's also one that you don't want to take too early. Uh, if you don't understand what you're doing, it is entirely possible for you to mess it up and lose your Bitcoin. Uh, you hear lots of stories of people who got into Bitcoin like in the really, really early days and then they lost it. It's on a hard drive in some landfill somewhere uh, and they no longer have access to it. Um, so you don't want that to be your story. Um, so it's important to take care when you're custodying the Bitcoin yourself. Uh, it's basically the same problem as if you have gold in your house and you're trying to custody it yourself, you need to, you know, store it properly and make sure that it's secure. Do you have some, uh, some recommendations on material for that we can link as well? Um, So, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely do. There, uh, probably the best way to do it is through a device called a hardware wallet. 
Uh, and the point of the hardware wallet is uh, just that it is its own device that is separate from your computer that doesn't get on the internet. Uh, so it's not susceptible to, you know, getting hacked. Um, it's something that's physical that you can keep, keep off of the internet. Uh, my favorite one is uh, a device called a cold card um, made by um, a company in Canada that makes these uh, awesome little Bitcoin products. Um, and it, it's actually able to function entirely uh, separate from a computer. So you never have to plug it into a computer. Um, it communicates with a, a little SD card. You can put uh, transactions on it to sign. Um, so I know I'll, any, any, uh, as soon as you start getting into the hardware wallet thing, uh, you get a lot more questions of, wait, how is that possible? How can it hold Bitcoin if it never gets on the internet? Isn't this an internet thing? Uh, so there's quite a wormhole of of uh, that gets opened up when you go there of wait how does this actually work uh which i find fascinating as a software developer uh but uh does not always intrigue everyone else as much as it does me well so. will i think uh if, if anything i've learned a lot about bitcoin but i've also learned that our uh, our group text of the three of us is going to be buzzing over the next few weeks as hayden and i try to figure out how to accurately purchase bitcoin <laughs> Yeah. Well, if you need help transferring it off to us, you'll a, just let us put it on yours, right? Let me know. I, uh, <laughs> helped a few people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I got a spot. <laughs> I got a vacancy, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on with us, Will. We really appreciate you taking the time. This is a incredibly complicated subject. Obviously, you know, we've just sort of tip of the iceberg here. You're a software developer, as you mentioned, and I'm pretty sure you said at the beginning that you're still researching Bitcoin, and that it's just such a such a you know, tip of the iceberg. It's such a deep concept that there's so much, like, I, don't, I doubt anybody besides the creators truly understand Bitcoin to its full depth. Yeah, 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 there is so much there. And even understanding it extremely well at a technical software level, uh, you're still able to not understand it at an economic monetary level. Like, there's just so many branches of, of, um, of depth to it that it really is hard for any one person to cover it. So I I'm definitely understand the software side more. That was the first area that I was able to sort of comprehend. And I'm getting more into the uh, economics of it and the statistics of the modeling behind the economics of it. But I'm definitely... Um, well, get ready for part two when we bring point. you back to have so, you explain uh, economics to us. And then part three is going to be hardware wallets. Yeah, well, the economics expert. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Will. We really yeah. appreciate your time. I look forward to it. That's right. Everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, come yeah. back next week as it's we discuss fine. another interesting topic. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, any suggestions for future episodes, or would like to be an expert on our show, please email us at 101guidetolife at gmail.com or send us a voice recording through Anchor.